a question from our youngest listener. Dimitra posed a question which caught me by surprise, and it made me realize that our children are growing up in a very different world than we did when it comes to a very important ontological question. Dimitra, would you like to ask? Yes. How do we know you're real? We might see um, a background of a stage with some people sitting and then someone in front, like a drawing. So then you might be a drawing and a computer-generated graphic and your voice may also be computer-generated. And... And actually everything about your existence may be so. So then, and I believe that the question is that Dimitri poses and genuinely baffles here. So in a world where AI is becoming more and more intelligent and the chasm of humanity versus artificial intelligence seems to close. Hey, it's Seth, or maybe not. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about the future of real. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. Are you ready to turn pro? The Creatives Workshop is back. It's back because it works. It's our most engaged Akimbo workshop. It's a workshop for people who have something to say, to write, to paint, to communicate. People who want to be creative. Come find the others. Learn what it means to see and be seen. When you're serious about your work and you're ready to take it to the next level, The Creatives Workshop is here to help. I hope you'll check it out. It's at thecreativesworkshop.com. We'll see you there. In 1983, I took a course in artificial intelligence from one of the smartest people I've ever met. A few years after that, Doug Lanott summarized his research on AI by saying, intelligence is 10 million rules. In a different quote, he amplified that. Once you have a truly massive amount of information integrated as knowledge, then the human software system will be superhuman in the same sense that mankind with writing or language itself is superhuman compared to mankind before writing or language itself. We look back on pre-linguistic cavemen and think, They weren't quite human, were they? In much the same way, our descendants will look back on pre-AI with exactly that mixture of otherness and pity. In the 1980s, when Lenat was doing his work, he was an outsider. His theory was not that we should understand how the brain works so we can make artificial intelligence that matches it, nor was his theory that we had some other clever hack that we could use to, without a lot of work, create artificial intelligence. His theory was that we needed to spend thousands and thousands and thousands of person years to acquire an enormous number of rules and facts and put them into a place where a computer could find them and, quote, learn them. Well, as if answering his request, we built the Internet. We built the Internet, a place where millions and millions of people have added stuff to Reddit, or Wikipedia, or countless other spots where folks are listing all the rules. 
about how things work, about how language works, about the fundamental relationships between things. For example, as Doug has pointed out, once you know that someone was born in 1930, you know that it's impossible that they died in 1925, because one of our rules is can't die before you're born. And there are lots of those rules. If something or someone knows enough of those rules and can have a veneer of intelligence at the same time, it's very hard to tell that apart from a real person. So now we are living in a world where many of us are sheltering in place, where we absorb information via video, via audio, and via text. And that world will never be the same again. When we think back to the Turing test from 80 or so years ago, what we see is a really simple parlor trick that has profound implications. And it's simply, you're in a room, in another room someone's typing on a keyboard. And your job is to figure out whether the typing you're reading is coming from a person or a computer. And for years and years, people said the Turing test was silly. It was silly because there's just no way a computer is going to be able to interact with us in a way when we're talking about a broad area of expertise that we can't tell it apart from a person. Well, like all things in artificial intelligence, everything that we reserve for AI is stuff that a computer hasn't done yet. The fact that a computer can beat anyone in chess or Go or checkers is no longer considered important because the computer figured out how to do it. And we say, yeah, but it can't do this or it can't do that yet. And now it's all changing. So let's begin with audio. Who is this talking? An entire generation is unable to recognize basic tools. Some are under the delusion that this is a wrench. They are sorely mistaken. So I need every one of you to take action now and teach them the correct nomenclature. This is not a drill. And repeat, this is not a drill. Or perhaps this. Hey, Nick. Hey, good to meet you. Clinton. Oh, yes. I've heard a lot about you. <laughs> how's, how's, how's Tether going? Is, is it good? Uh, you got the financing yet? Well, we've been struggling with that a little bit. Well, you know, it takes time, but, you know, I'm here to help. I'm a helper. Yeah? <laughs> That's what I do. Help me help you. AI researchers have figured out how to mimic the human voice so that we can type just about anything we want and have it come out sounding like somebody we recognize. The step after that was video, and now it's pretty clear, just as you can't trust a photograph because it might have been doctored, it's really hard to trust a video because computing power has gotten so good and the editors are so smart that they can fake a video and we really can't tell the difference. After all, Hollywood spent billions of dollars to create the special effects that helped us believe that Christopher Reeves could fly, that helped us believe that Arnold Schwarzenegger was a good actor. When you add it all up, we can't believe what we see in the movies, but we don't even try because we know they're the movies. But throughout all of this, we've been reserving, yeah, but a computer, a computer can't talk to me in English in a way that makes me sure that it's not a computer, except now it can. Now we have entered the realm of GPT-3. GPT-3 speaks natural language, English and many other languages. How did they accomplish this? They accomplished it because 35 years ago, Doug Lanott was right. They accomplished it by feeding it 
two orders of magnitude more information than they fed GPT-2. It has read billions and billions of bits of information. It has read all of it. And as a result, almost no one can tell the difference between GPT-3 and a real person. So to give you an example of how this works, a podcaster who makes a podcast called Tinkered Thinking got his hands on early access to the API for GPT-3. And he decided to make a podcast where he would prompt the software with a paragraph and it would respond. So for example, he types, as the text for this episode grows in this way, it will be fed back into GPT-3 after we have added the text in order to generate another paragraph given the larger context of the episode. Then, without any more information, the software wrote, something that has been really fun about this collaboration has been watching how GPT-3 writes in response to things Tinkered Thinking has written. When Tinkered Thinking adds a line of humor, for example, GPT-3 is very likely to follow up with something funny as well. This kind of feedback in the text has actually produced some pretty organic-feeling conversation in the episode. So just to be really clear, that was a computer writing that. This software, which is bigger than any software that could have been possibly built just a few years ago, is capable not only of doing rudimentary math, it can program in a variety of programming languages, and it can translate from one language to another, English to Greek, English to French, better than just about any alternative. Here's one more line from the Tinkered Thinking podcast. So far, after many thousands of iterations, we have figured out that the best way to get GPT-3 to understand what we wanted to do is by giving it examples of our work. It's talking about itself in the third person. So, sound, audio, fake. Video, fake. Thinking processes, language, human beings talking, fake. Hook it all together, and it's really clear nothing can be guaranteed to be real ever again. This is way beyond the manipulation of the so-called fake news. This is about our perception of what it means to be in the world and to interact. GPT-3 is capable of writing a Seth Godin blog post that even Seth Godin would read and say, maybe I wrote that 10 years ago. What we are now entering is this era where there is a device that knows everything and that can interact with us in a way that sounds like we have a best friend with nothing better to do than tell us what we need to know. So if you're in customer service, tell me again why GPT-3 can't do 99% of what you do all day. If you are in the business of sitting with people and patiently teaching them something in response to what they say to you, tell me why GPT-3 isn't going to do that. What is really clear to me is that if you have a job where we can specify what good and bad results look like, there's a computer that's going to be able to do that job really soon. That the spot that's left for humans is initiative, is surprise, is random connection, is trust. Those things, for now, belong to people and just only people. 
and that going forward, there is going to be a podcast from someone who's pretending to be Seth Godin that might very well be GPT-3 or GPT-4 hooked up to a voice synthesizer. And in most cases, we're going to say, that's okay. It's okay because marketing and leadership are about making a promise and keeping it. And if GPT-3 can keep its promise, if it can consistently show up in a way that you need it to, I don't think its authenticity or lack thereof matters at all. Authenticity is a fun sideshow that we sort of invented fairly recently. The idea that the voice in someone's head matters as much as the words that are coming out of their mouth. Knowing that other people have a voice in their head, that's pretty new. And computers, they don't have a voice in their head. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the GPS really and truly wants you to go to Middleton, New York. It will get you to Middleton, New York. And you'd rather have the GPS take you there than some schmo on the phone. And the same thing is true with many other elements of our life. The ones where we do care about someone exerting themselves, about someone bringing, quote, their true self to the table, those aren't going to go away in this generation. But all the other stuff where we have been throwing human spam at it, the flotsam and jetsam of people calling you at home during dinner, the idea that you should be using a doctor's time to go through your list of symptoms when maybe what you need is GPT-3 to go through your list at your leisure, 24 hours a day. And then when it's all summarized and neat and clean and clear, bringing in somebody, maybe it's a somebody, maybe it's a something that can actually help you get better. We are about to completely redefine what it means to interact with one another because we're adding to the one another list this idea built by OpenAI, a giant project that is going to transform the world forever. And we can ignore it, but it's not going to slow down. It's here, it's real, it's about to scale in a dramatic way. Open the pod bay door, Hal. It's time to figure out what it means to be truly human. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If you're a person, I hope you will drop me a question. I'd love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any other previous episode, please visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K and click the appropriate button. You can be as young as you want and you don't even have to be a person. I'd love to hear from you. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but 
it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.